great to see you. Happy Easter. Uh, I hope you're uh, able to take a little bit of a break. Uh, if you're not, I hope you're able to take a break at some point uh, in the future. But it's great for us to be able to share uh, this afternoon and to, sp- to think about uh, that great uh, Easter message. At the same time, if you've been able to be with us over these past uh, weeks, we've been working through the story of Nehemiah. And uh, as we've been working through that story, in fact, we've called the series uh, Nehemiah, A Vision Beyond the Walls. The story of Nehemiah is 430 years before Jesus. Uh, At the end of the story, that's where it completes. Around about 430 years before Jesus. And the whole of the story is about uh, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem uh, and re-establishing Jerusalem as once again that iconic city of God's people where God's justice, God's kingdom, God's mercy, God's purity is displayed. Uh, I guess for us this afternoon, this is the opportunity where we really see, we really are able to get our hands on what that vision beyond the walls was actually all about. If you were here last week, one of the things I think we recognized at the end of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes back Uh, to Susa, to the king's palace where he serves for a number of years. Uh, And then he returns to Jerusalem and he finds that Jerusalem has declined. It's gone backwards from that place of great excitement, worship, purity, everything was sorted. It's gone backwards. Uh, And there's a sense of disappointment, I think, almost, in the way that the story, it almost fizzles out. Nehemiah does the job again. Uh, What do you think happened in the 430 years between Nehemiah coming back and purifying the city again and Jesus returning? Do you think it maintained that high standard? It didn't. In fact, the the whole of the uh, message of Jesus around Jerusalem reminds us that Jerusalem did not sustain the qualities that were described for it. This iconic capital of the kingdom, this place where the purity of God's people was to be established. In other words, it suggests to me that for all of the work, all of the activity, all of the commitment, we are reminded that we cannot create heaven on earth by human means. We are completely unable to achieve it. We are unable to remain pure. We are unable to remain holy. We are unable to meet the standards which God describes to us. Uh, Two years ago, 2014, um, we spent a couple of days in Israel with an Israeli tour guide. And uh, he said this, and I found this absolutely fascinating. He said that he he didn't realize that... um, He didn't know what I did as a job. He didn't know I was a Christian. As far as he was concerned, I was just another tourist from the UK. Uh, And we were talking about um, the young people, young citizens of Israel, uh, and this amazing history that they live in, and yet they live day to day just doing their normal stuff. Uh, And he said this, which I found absolutely fascinating. He said, You know, a lot of young Israelis are now reading the four Gospels because they find that that brings completion to the history. 
Wow! I thought, that, that is amazing. Because that really is what a lot of the Old Testament is about. It leaves us with a sense of, uh, a sense of missing. A sense that the story isn't completed. A sense that Jerusalem is there, but it's not quite what we need. There's got to be something more. What I find also amazing is that that Jerusalem is absolutely essential in the story, life, the story of the life of Jesus. Jerusalem is present at the beginning, and Jerusalem is present at the end. In fact, the life of Jesus, is, apart from the regular visits that he makes to, Jesus, to Jerusalem through his ministry, the presence of Jerusalem bookends the life of Jesus. You remember the occasion where, it's not so long ago, was it, that we were celebrating Christmas? Do you remember the occasion where the three uh, wise men, or the one <laughs> fallen into the trap, we don't know there were, there were three, there were three gifts, and there we, we think there might have been three wise men. They arrive uh, in Jerusalem because they know that it's the city of the kings of Israel, and they've seen Uh, a, a symbolic representation in the stars that something significant has happened in the kingdom of Israel and in therefore in the capital city in Jerusalem. They end up in Bethlehem and the story unfolds. But Jerusalem plays its part at the beginning. Jerusalem also plays its part at the end. How lo- have any of you been involved? I'm sure some of you will have been involved in uh, product, kids' productions at school. Uh, I never was good enough for kids' productions at school. There was always somebody who was far more confident at the front or could sing better, could dance better, and all the rest of it. Um, all that kind of stuff happened outside of me. But from what I see, what I observe, and speaking to teachers who are involved in it, there is a huge amount of preparation that goes on before. There's the painting of the scenery, there's the, the kind of corralling of, of kids trying to get them to do the stuff at the right time, remember their words, not fall asleep, turn up on the evenings. There's a huge amount of work just to put on a little production in school. The whole of the message of the Old Testament, in a sense, is God creating the scenery for the great story. He's creating this picture that what we really need in this world is God's kingdom. And, it, and all of that preparation centers around Jerusalem, centers around Israel, centers around all of the work that God does to reestablish what God's people mess up. They mess it up and God's continually working to prepare the stage. And Jerusalem is reestablished in the days of Nehemiah and it just kind of carries on between Nehemiah and the Roman Empire and the invasion of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem by the Romans, there is no other significant occupation. There's uprisings against the Romans, but even under Roman rule, Jerusalem remains active as the center of religious worship for God's people. Jerusalem is there active as the presentation and supposedly doing its job of being the describer of purity, the describer of worship, 
the message to the nations that this is what God's glory looks like. It's the place where the temple was. It's the place where sins can be atoned for. All of the sacrificial system is going on. The stage, though, is set for the great story. At the beginning, we have Jerusalem in the life of Jesus. At the end of Jesus' life, we have the most incredible display of the significance of Jerusalem. In fact, the whole of the last week of Jesus' life and ministry before his crucifixion centers around Jerusalem. Day one, first day of the week, Sunday. He gets onto a donkey and he rides triumphantly, majestically into the city. He arrives in that city. What did Nehemiah do when, when uh, Sanballat and Tobiah said, uh, and we've heard that you're going to establish yourself as king in Jerusalem? He said, nothing could be further from the truth. You're, you're making it up. Why? Because he was never going to be king. He was preparing the place for the king. Who was the last one who rode into the city? was King David on a donkey. And Jesus arrives to huge acclaim. The city is stirred by it. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He rides into the city in the same way as David rode into the city. And he proclaims, in a sense, his people proclaim him, here is the Messiah. What does that look like for Jerusalem? It looks like purity has returned. All of the work that Nehemiah did to purify Jerusalem, never really got done, and now here's the king, and he's going to get it right. Day one, he arrives. Day two, what does he do? He purges the temple. Sometimes, I think we have the idea of Jesus, that he's that kind of really gentle, cutesy, wimpish kind of person who's lovely to everybody and would never offend anyone. That is a wrong depiction of Jesus. One of the great things about Jesus is that he is absolutely rigorous. He stands in the face of opposition and he is justifiably angry for the right things. And what does he do? He does exactly what Nehemiah had done earlier. He purges the temple. He makes the temple clean again. He goes in there. Imagine the scene. There's this huge temple courtyard. There's the temple mount. We can see the building of the temple mount. All of this, this, this huge amount of space is taken up with uh, a whole load of ritual washing baths, with money changers who are there to serve a good purpose of exchanging your coins so that you can pay the temple tax. And what it has descended into is a merchandising, money-making racket. And Jesus blasts into there, and he turns over the tables, and he shouts And he's in the face of people and he purges the temple. He makes Jerusalem, in one sense, right again. 
That's the Monday. On the Tuesday, he confronts the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy. He speaks parables. He challenges them for the way that they are leading the people. He says, you are not leading the people as you ought to be in front of God. You are not displaying who you are. Jesus does all of the things that Nehemiah does. Tuesday, Wednesday, within Jerusalem, Judas is bribed to betray Jesus. What an, what an amazing picture. Here's the king who's arrived, and in the first period of the week, all of the good things are being done. And then right there on the Wednesday, we have the kind of intrigue. We have the other side, the dark side of Jerusalem. The side which is beginning to respond negatively to all that Jesus has done. The power play, if you like. Those who are saying, he's not coming in, he's not going to rule over us, he's not going to bring the purity if purity looks like that. We want it like this. We want our power, we want our way. And Judas is bribed to betray Jesus on the Thursday. Jesus celebrates a supper with his disciples and he describes to them in that moment precisely what is going to happen over the next hours in this city. On the Friday, unfolding in front of us is this incredible story of a man who is taken, who has arrived to great acclaim, who has lived his life with purity whose accusers are brought and no charge can be brought against him, and so lies are made up, and he is brought before a court. And within that court, both the Jewish people and the Roman people stand hand in hand, accusing Jesus and finding him guilty of trumped-up charges. Within the city. And at that moment where he is found guilty, he is taken out of the city. And he's nailed to a cross. And he dies. And he's taken down from the cross. And outside of the city walls, he's buried. Saturday is silent. He's dead. We could place ourselves at that moment in the narrative. We could place ourselves in our imagination on either side. We could place ourselves in, the, in our imagination in the side of those who've been infuriated by the things that Jesus has said. Absolutely outraged. And we could sit there and we could think on that Saturday, whew, the job's done. We, we really came close there. Here was somebody who was really beginning to destabilize. There were all sorts of really strange things going on. There was that incredible occasion where the temple curtain between the, the, the holy part of the temple and the most holy part is ripped from top to bottom. There's darkness, there's earthquakes, there's all sorts of unbelievable stuff going on. And then there is the, the silence of Saturday. We've managed to get away with it. We've done our job. 
In other words, when Jesus is out of Jerusalem, when he's dead on the hillside and buried in the cave, Jerusalem in the minds of those individuals is back to normal. Do you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Is it meaningful for us? I think it's astoundingly meaningful. Was it a surprise for Jesus? Did he arrive in Jerusalem on that first Sunday, that first day of the week, and as he rode in to great acclaim, did he think everything's going according to plan? And then the wheels fell off the plan in, the, in, in metaphorical sense. And there's crisis and it all goes to pot. Luke tells us that there's a moment in the life of Jesus. In chapter 9 and verse 51 it says this. As the time approached, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. When Jesus is ready to return to heaven, it's Jerusalem that he sets out for. Resolutely. Committed, determined, not with a sense of joy, but with a sense of purpose. This is where the story is going to unfold. He arrives in Jerusalem. He's taken out. And then we come to that that reading that we had earlier. Verse 57 of chapter 27. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. That's a remarkable little couple of sentences there. It's amazing. Firstly, we've got this very rich man of prominence, The kind of person who can go and speak to Pilate. (laughs) Pilate is one of those um, supreme governors who spent his time um, between uh, Caesarea Philippi, I think it's Caesarea Philippi, and at times in Jerusalem. Didn't like going to Jerusalem because the climate wasn't that bad, but he'd have to go at times to kick things into shape. Passover was always a challenging time, and so he went up to Jerusalem during this time. And Joseph is the kind of person with the kind of standing in society where he can go to Pilate and say, can we take his body? He had become a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Yes, the Christian faith established itself proportionally, significantly amongst the slave categories and the poorer categories, but it was not exclusively amongst the poor that the Christian faith emerged in those first uh, decades after the life of Jesus. There were significant players, powerful players, who saw what was going on, and Joseph of Arimathea says to Pilate, let me take his body, let me put it in, in my tomb. Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Two things. He knows he's dead and he's doing an amazing thing. I have to admit, 
as I grew up, and I read that, I thought, that, that, is, that is beyond amazing what he's doing. He's giving, a, giving him his grave. <laughs> uh, that, that is an incredible sacrifice. Only recent period of time that I've come to understand the way it actually worked. We have what we call rolling stone tombs. The rolling stones, actually, maybe they got the name from, I don't know. But you have literally rolling stone tombs cut into the rock with a channel in front and a round stone that you roll to and fro across the entrance. The body is placed in the tomb and it normally stays in the tomb for around about two years. In, in kind of horrific terms, the body decays. What, what's left is the bones. The bones are then taken and placed in an ossuary a clay box. So what Joseph was doing was a kind gesture, but he wasn't giving up his tomb so he'd have to dig another one for himself. This was the common practice, a rolling stone tomb, and he went away. What was going to happen from that moment in time? It was the end. But for some, it wasn't quite the end, was it? For those who were, had been um, the opposition to Jesus, there was that extra level of concern. And, and so they went uh, to Pilate and they said, that we've, we know that this deceiver, what he planned to do what was rise from the dead. Now, you can't do that. We know you can't do that. But we know what his deceptive followers are like. So what, what we need to do is seal the tomb for three days because he said he would rise on the third day. So Pilate said, that's fine. Seal the tomb. Place a guard there. Do whatever is necessary. I find it absolutely fascinating. You know, sometimes there's, there's a little suggestion that, that the religious leaders weren't clear what Jesus was meaning in, in the way that he taught beforehand. As though the way he described things was a little bit obtuse, uh, a bit in one sense, and then on the other sense, is a little bit vague. Was he really saying he'd rise again? Here's his opposition who are saying, he has said he's going to rise again on the third day, so let's seal the tomb, which is exactly what Pilate did. How would all of this opposition come about? There's a story that Jesus tells where he's confronting the religious leaders in the early part of Passion Week. He tells a story like this. It was a very rich ruler. And he, he, he grew a vineyard. And he put a wall around it. And it was very precious to him. And he built a watchtower. And then he placed it in the hands of husbandmen, workers, servant workers. And in placing it in their hands, he left them to take care of it. And then he sent some of his servants down to collect some of the produce. And in collecting the produce, seeing them arriving, 
The, the servants looked out at those who'd come to collect, and they decided, right, here we, here we come. They're going to come and take some of the good stuff. So they killed the servants. Jesus carried on with the story. He said, once the ruler had seen that his servants had been killed, they thought, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son, because they won't despise my son. So he sent his son. And they killed his son. And then Jesus asks, what do you think the ruler will do? And the answer is clear. He's going to turn on those wicked men, and he's going to destroy them for killing his son. Listening on to that were the religious leaders who went to Pilate and said, let's seal the tomb for three days. Listening on were those very same people. And they were incensed when Jesus told that story because they knew that Jesus was talking about them. What was the vineyard with the wall around it? Jerusalem. Here's the wall built. It was perfect. Watchtower was built. Everything was there of glory and majesty. And then he sent prophets. And then he sent Jesus. And the wicked rulers even killed his son. What do you think the ruler is going to do with that? The the remarkable part of that story is precisely what Jesus answers as the outcome. It's precisely how those people then decided to act. He said this, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. That's what Jesus said. In the early part of that Passion Week, he faced out those religious leaders and he said, don't you realize this is all about me? I'm the son. And they said, if you're the son, we're going to kill you. You know that kid's... uh, game where you play uh, paper, rock, scissors, or rock, paper, scissors. You know that one where whichever one you choose, if it's scissors, it cuts the paper. If it's paper, it wraps the rock. If it's rock, it sharpens the scissors. You know, every one wins on one side or the other. Jesus concludes his message with this. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. There's no way in which you can lose with Jesus. And the outcome of that is that they killed him. And the outcome of his death is that he rose again. They arrived on the morning and he was alive. I want to ask you this as we conclude. What does that victory look like? first thing I want to suggest is this. It looks like fully taking on 
the worst that the enemy can throw at you. The worst that the enemy can throw at you. Taking it on. It's a really exciting rugby match this past week. It was brilliant. Cast Tigers, and looking at Noel Banfield and Jacob and Isaac, and at Leeds Rhinos, we beat them. It was great. Sorry, sorry lads. It was. It was brilliant. But what was... What is always that question? Whenever one beats the other, there's always that question, isn't there? Yes, but we didn't have Danny Maguire. And all of those kind of things. And when normally leads get batter cast, there's all of the reasons why maybe we might have won if we just had one thing or the other or the other or the other. One of the things that we see in Jesus is that the very worst, the absolute worst that the enemy could ever throw at Jesus is precisely what he takes on. What is that? What is the worst that the enemy can throw? Was it what the Jews could throw? Was it what the Romans could throw? Actually, ultimately, it was what God brings on his son. Because the worst that could be brought to Jesus is that he dies. You can't get any worse than that, can you? That is the end. It's like being completely defeated and then coming up and winning. The worst that the enemy could throw at Jesus is precisely what he absorbs and then he triumphs. That is great news for you and me. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also live. What does that mean? It means that the enemy can throw the absolute worst. It can't get any worse. And trust in Jesus means that we will win. Trust in Jesus means that we will live. There can never be that nagging doubt... Well, Jesus looks like quite a good saviour, but he never absorbed this or that or the other. Jesus absorbed everything that the enemy could possibly throw at him, and then he triumphed. That's the one thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is this. It looks like a new kingdom. In verse 28 and verse 9 and 10, we read this. Suddenly, Jesus met them. The risen Jesus meets those who had gone to look for him. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to... What would you expect? If all of the story has been centering around Jerusalem, what would you expect? You'd expect Jesus to say, go and tell those of my followers to meet me on the temple steps or to meet me in some other prominent place in Jerusalem because I'll establish my kingdom in Jerusalem. No, he says, go to Galilee. 
That's where you'll meet me. In fact, the remarkable thing that we find in the resurrected Jesus is there is no clear reference to Jesus returning to Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? It's all been about Jerusalem. And yet the outcome of that week is he's cast out of Jerusalem. And then he rises again from the dead and it's as though Jerusalem is past. It's no longer significant. It's gone. Why is that? Why is Jerusalem no longer significant in the resurrected Jesus? Because he says that the new kingdom is going to be taken away from you, those religious leaders, and it's going to be given to a people who will produce its fruit. This is the new kingdom. This here, now gathered in this place, is the new Jerusalem. Every place across the world where people meet in the name of Jesus, recognizing Him as King, is the new Jerusalem. The place is forgotten. The place is ended. It's no longer significant. It's all about a people who will, what? Produce its fruit. What does purity look like? Looks like a people who don't think they've got anything to bring. And yet still trust in Jesus. It looks like a people who know that they have sinned against that king more than they could ever imagine, and yet still trust that He is gracious and kind to forgive them and be merciful. It looks like a people who say, we have no right to be the kingdom of heaven, and yet, by grace, we are. It looks like a people who are emptied of any personal strength, any personal ability to secure their salvation, and yet they say, when Jesus rises from the dead, I believe that that can be for me as well. I find it remarkable that for a week, everything centers around Jerusalem. The stage is set, and then as Jesus rises from the dead, it's just a forgotten afterthought. In fact, Jesus As he commissions his disciples, he tells them to go from Jerusalem to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Take this message out to what we proclaim today. Our hope is built in the resurrected Jesus. That's our hope. It's not a place anymore. It's not a location. It's not a physical presence. But it is a king. And it is a rule. And it is a Lord. And He rules amongst us and He rules within us. And He is Lord of our hearts when we believe and we trust in Him. And so what we have shared in our communion earlier is our way of saying, I truly believe that that death is the end of sacrifice. It's done now. 
Jerusalem's finished in that sense. And yet it continues. It lives on until one day the bride will return. Sorry, the bridegroom will return for his bride. And the new Jerusalem will be established. But that's, as they say, another part of the story.